0: Dear Lord, thank you for another Sunday to gather together in your name to encourage one another to uh, explore the truths that are revealed in your word, to apply those truths into our lives, and to ask you to do a work of grace to help us that we might change and grow. Lord, we pray for the dear saints that listen from afar. May you bless them, help them find fellowship, and may the means of grace also have a powerful effect in their lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Interesting, uh, you know, I'll start out with a little story here. I get up every morning and read the paper, and this morning I got up about 5.30, 5.45, and the paper was already there, so I got a chance to read more than I usually do on Sunday. And there was an article in there about what things were like in the 19th century compared to the 20th as far as how a person achieved maturity. And it talked about Abraham Lincoln and his bouts of just misery and depression. and It was very interesting. They said that in the 19th century in America, it was commonly believed that the big problem was sin. I mean, in other words, we had our demons, figuratively speaking, and there was, that we were in a really bad, sinful condition, and that what maturity was was be able to get to the point where you overcame that, and did something with yourself in spite of the problems that are built into humans, and, and that that view prevailed. According to the article in the day's that view prevailed until early 20th century, and then what became popular was more of a journey of self-discovery. Okay, and so the the change in in worldview was from a view that humans come into the world messed up and sinful, and that we can't let let that. You know, of course, the article didn't have the gospel in it, so you know, it's deficient in that way, because the gospel is the only hope for <laughs> anything to change, right? But but because of that worldview that we came into the world sinful, and that we can't let the baser part of our nature overcome us. And we have to, therefore, to, to go from youthfulness to maturity was to defeat your demons and do something virtuous with your life. Well, I know you can't without the gospel, but this guy was not a Christian writer. <laughs> but but I, I'm thinking about just the world, world view, though. That, and they did have the gospel in the 19th century in a lot, a lot of America, a lot of Christianity. So... Now, the view is self-discovery, and you see people not wanting to go to maturity because life's all about seeing how long you can play. okay? And then and we also lost the idea that we have this sin nature, which would lead people to the gospel. So I'm just recommending a little article, Trib today, and I can't even remember who wrote it. But it, it is interesting to see what kind of worldview we're living in. Now, that's why we got to preach the law and the gospel, because people don't believe they're sinners. So they need the law to convince them that they're sinners. So, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 7. Paul is, remember a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about verse 6, Paul was comforted because Timothy came with a good report that his severe letter had indeed done what he prayed and hoped that it would do, which was bring about repentance in the... Corinthians, and we've gone over quite a a bit, all the problems and issues and what have you, so I won't reset the stage here. Trust that those who have been studying with us know now what the situation was. Now, verse 7, and not only this, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as you reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Even though there were problems, Paul is rejoicing because there has been repentance. The term there for longing is an attachment mixed with a nuance of anxiety or pain, according to Garland, one of the scholars that I read on this. So an attachment mixed with a nuance of anxiety or pain, longing, mourning would be the word for lamentation, a uh, lamentation or mourning in this case would be what happened was they saw the severe letter, and the Lord softened their hearts, and they realized that they'd wronged Paul, who had brought them the gospel. And not universally, because there's still problems, but many of them repented. And they now are lamenting their previous stance where they questioned Paul and consequently his gospel which is what he was the most concerned about because he was as i said before afraid that if they rejected him they would also reject the gospel and there would be eternal consequences and zeal zelos in the greek so we get our word zeal means the same thing as what we would understand it to mean in english troy could you look up psalm 30 and verse 5 I'm going to quote from Garland. Five things evoke Paul's joy. One, Titus' safe arrival. Two, the comforting news about their longing for Paul, their mourning over the unpleasant incident, and their zeal to reform. Three, the Corinthians' repentance caused by their godly sorrow. Four, Titus's joy over the situation. And five, the confirmation of his boast about them. He expressed, his expression of joy confirms that the bond between them has not been irretrievably broken as he had feared. So, though Paul obviously is not going to compromise anything concerning the gospel and the truth, thus he wrote the severe letter, Paul was not just a, a, a hard-hearted guy. He, his, he, he loved these people, and he wanted the repentance to bring a restoration to the relationship. Okay, Psalm 30 and verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. (laughs) Amen. So the result of repentance ultimately is joy and reconciliation. And this morning, that's going to be our theme. We're going to study the idea of repentance. So, Therefore, let's go to verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow only though only for a while. Because it resulted in the desired outcome, he doesn't regret it. The letter was his letter of tears that we studied before that we don't have but we know exists existed at one time paul doesn't does not enjoy causing pain, but it's necessary to bring about repentance. You know sometimes when we we discuss the gospel with people that aren 't accustomed to hearing it, and the response often is why why all this hellfire and brimstone all the time don 't don 't we need love? Have you ever heard people say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you all have <laughs> okay and it's it, 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 To some people, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that that we have this really strong preaching about sin and about um, justice and and God's justice and the blood atonement and, and, and so on and so forth. And to people who are unaccustomed to hearing the gospel proclaimed according to the terms of the New Testament, when they hear it, it almost shocks them. It almost is like, this is too much. This is just too intense. And we've had people say that that came and visited, and they said, it's so intense. But while we're just teaching verse by verse through the Bible. The intensity comes not from us doing, I mean, we're not using techniques to heighten the drama. We're just explaining the, the truth of the Scripture the best we can. So the intensity comes from the fact that that we are in a grave and serious condition. And that this condition is so dangerous that nothing is more important than escaping from it. And the condition that we're in is that we're abide, we abide under God's wrath. So if sorrow leads to repentance, then we have to rejoice in that. And there wasn't any other way for Paul to deal with them than to send that severe letter because they were attempting they were heading toward apostasy. Yes, try.
1: Just a quick something that came to mind. The word is a sharp,
0: piercing, two-edged sword. hmm Yeah, it does. When the word gets through to us, it pierces, and then it heals, and it comforts. Amen. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So this—that's what Paul's talking about here. He—he—he he, he doesn't take some sort of a cruel ple- pleasure out of making people. Feel sorrow. He doesn't even enjoy making people feel sorrow, but it's necessary to tell the truth. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The word sorrow can also be translated grief, and it's a theme that comes from uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 11, that, he had, that we studied earlier. I have a quote here from uh, Barnett. 374. It says here, this is a guy named Barnett, a scholar. The fact is that after he dispatched the letter, he, didn't, he did regret sending it because he knew it would bring pain. But now he does not regret it because he's aware that the letter grieved them only for a little while, that is, relatively speaking. The outcome of their grief, as he has learned from Titus's report, brought his regrets to an end. The letter, whose impact may have been intensified by the ministry of its bearer, Titus, has produced a dramatic and instant effect. And that effect we're going to study in verse 9. And I'm going to spend more time here, and we're going to go into the Old Testament. And today I want to show you from the Old Testament and the New Testament what the Bible means by repentance. What is repentance? And one of the errors that is prominent in American evangelicalism today in in a number number of circles. This, This is very, I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. You hear this same error for various reasons in different systems of theology. And it's this, that the meaning of the term repent is only found in the etymology of the Greek, which means to change your mind. So therefore, repentance is simply you used to think one way and now you think a different way. That's, I am going to try to show you that that's false. It doesn't do justice to what Paul and the other New Testament writers meant. And I believe that we'll find the idea of repentance as taught in the Old Testament to be the background to the word metanoeo. And one of my favorite essays on this word for repent is found in what's so-called Kittle or the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, There's an excellent essay in there showing that they believe, these scholars believe, that the term finds its meaning in the Old Testament concept of conversion. All right? The idea of conversion. Now certainly it is, our mind is involved in repentance, but that doesn't exhaust the idea. It's certainly true that when you're converted, you think different than you did before you were converted. Okay? But the conversion is a far more powerful and profound idea than just thinking differently. And I think that the thinking differently idea causes people a lot of false conversions, false assurance. Well, I decided I believed certain facts about Jesus, now that makes me a Christian. That is not what repentance means. I'm even going to claim the repentance is so powerful and so profound, it only happens through an act of God's grace. And I'm going to show you that that's actually true in the Old Testament as well. God calls for repentance. God causes repentance through His means. Now, verse nine says this: "Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us." Now, verse. Let me read verse ten: "For the sorrow that is according to the will of God." produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, one of the interesting issues that we need to discuss is why does he talk about leading to salvation when he's discussing the repentance of people who were already Christians? Because he's talking about the Corinthians who had already heard the gospel and already believed on some level and who were being led astray by false apostles and were being turned against Paul. And so the sorrowful letter produced repentance in them, and he says leading to salvation. And I think the first thing I would say about that is that I do believe in the, uh, the security of the believer, but I also believe in the validity of warnings about apostasy. And so that apostasy is a salvation issue. Apostasy is a salvation issue, and had they followed after these false teachers and totally compromise the gospel, there would have been evidence that they weren't saved. So repentance is something that can be applied to Christians. And the term can mean Christians turning away from some belief and course of action based on that belief that is leading them astray. And that's the case here. But it's always a salvation issue in some regard. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll take just one comment. I want to kind of stay on this verse here.
1: Are you saying then that if you're a believer and you repent from some sin that you're committing, that is godly repentance?
0: Yeah, in this case, that's what, what happened. That's what happened with the Corinthians. They repented of the sin of believing error and practicing sin, they were practicing. Remember the what were the sins of the Corinthian church? Participating in the pagan meals and immorality. So these are serious issues, and that's why Paul called for repentance, and that's why he warned them about their salvation. He says, "No one the, you, you, in First Corinthians six: those who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God." This is serious. That's why it is a salvation issue. And there's a mixed bag in the church uh, here, because some of them didn't actually repent, as we'll see later in Second Corinthians. So the Hebrew idea of turning to the Lord is important, and we're going to talk about that. Turning to the Lord. I think, I, were you talking about that Thursday
1: night, Ryan? I believe it was, we, we went to the beginning of uh, First, Cor- or First Thessalonians. Okay, Turning. Oh, yeah, you turn from idols to serve the
0: living God. And the yep. point is, that's always what salvation is about. Yeah, that was Ryan. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to give the right attribution to the idea that was in my mind. <laughs> so we want to look at some of that, because the word turning, to turn, is used synonymously with repent. Okay? So when it says you turn from idols to serve the living God, you could say of the same people, they repented. Okay, okay. the Hebrew idea of turning to the Lord, and we're going to study actually uh, uh, Jeremiah 31 this morning in, in this context, but let me stay on this verse here. Made sorrowful according to the will of God. And the word there is grieved and the air is passive. So something, God used Paul's letter of rebuke to at a point in time bring grief to these people. That was God's will that they would have this grief because the, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And being so grieved led to repentance so that you might not suffer loss. Patrick, could you look up 1 Corinthians 3.15? uses the same word in the Greek here for suffer loss and in the aorist passive subjunctive just as it's used here. Subjunctive means uh, there's, there's uncertainty about the condition's existence. In other words, you may or may not. That's, that's subjunctive
1: mood. Okay, what's 1 Corinthians 3.15? Talking about works. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames.
0: Okay, so there was discussing someone who built a wood hay and stubble, and the day will try it. There's going to be a day of fire. And if you didn't build the gold and silver, but you 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 had all this stubble, it'll suffer loss. It'll be burned up, and the person will be saved, at, but as by fire. Now, that's an important consideration. Now, some people might say, "Well, that's all right. I'll, I'll take. I'll, I'll, accept, I'll accept that. I, I, if, as long as I s- skate in, you know, kind of slide in through the at the bottom of the ninth and." sliding across the plate, and all my works are built, burned up by fire. Uh, that's enough for me. So I'm just going to live for this sinful world as much as I can. Now, what would you say to such a person? <laughs> repent. Yeah, I would say that's a sign that you're actually not saved. Because a saved person isn't looking to build with wood and stubble. They're wanting to build with, I mean, there's got to be some kind of desire in us that we be pleasing to the Lord. So, if we don't have that desire, it may be a sign of false assurance. But, okay, so that you might not suffer loss. Same word there, 1 Corinthians 3.15. And Paul has their best interests in mind. Godly grief is another way that this is is translated. Literally, grieved by God. And uh, Barrett says this about this godly grief. It points to the quality rather than the fact of their sorrow. So it was godly grief. The ESV translates it that way. Uh, here it says, according to the will of God, but literally godly grief. Something that's desirable and something that God brought. I'm going to quote also the same guy, Barrett. Repentance toward God, like reconciliation with God, cannot be separated from reconciliation with and repentance toward his apostle. Notice how closely the word is associated with uh, um, God himself let me let me quote that again and I'm going to respond to something I think somebody Mike I think you were telling me this Thursday night about people saying what were they saying oh that were bible worshipers? Scripture, worshipers scripture worshipers all right let me let me quote this again and let's comment on that it says here repentance toward God like reconciliation." Reconciliation with God cannot be separated from reconciliation with and repentance towards his apostle. Now for us, the words of the apostles that were appointed by Jesus Christ are the words of God. Okay, And if we have a wrong relationship to the word of God because of rebellion and unbelief, we have a wrong relationship to God. And if we know that we need God's word, in order to be restored to the truth and restored to proper relationship with God because the Holy Spirit comes to us, as Luther said, through the Word. We're going to publish an article that says that. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. So since these are the very words of God, we can't separate the two out. Now, yes, God is not His Word. God... You know, as far as ontology goes, God in his essence and being is above and beyond his own word because the word is just a partial revelation, but it's our way to come to God. And that would be to, to try to dissociate God's relationship to his people from the word would, would be similar to what happened in the Old Testament when they wanted to uh, cut Moses out of the deal. Remember? Remember Moses was the one who spoke face-to-face to God? And then and, and then the people said, Moses, you talk to God, and we'll listen to you. And in Deuteronomy 18, it says, and God said, they, they asked a good thing. God said it was good. So Moses was the ordained mediator of the Old Covenant. And the words from God came to them through Moses. But on occasion, they decided they didn't like that arrangement. All right? So we had uh, Korah. We had even uh, Miriam. And, and some of these people would say, "Well, we don't like the arrangement. We're going to go get our own word from God." And in one case, they were they dropped right into Sheol with Cora and his group. So, accusing people who love God's word of being idolaters is a false accusation, because the word of God is what turns us from idolatry to serve the living God. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. But see, what people are looking for is a direct, unmediated uh, contact
1: with the God they haven't known. Yes? So what would be an actual case of idolatry towards the Word? What would be the, the least crazy scenario where you could see that happening? I don't know. Can you think of one? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm imagining if people... Well, this is not so crazy. You pray to the Bible. Oh, I see. You could
0: take the Bible to be a religious object. Yeah. In other words, you could take the leather cover and the gold pages and and think that it, that there's magic in it. And if you put a copy in your tr- trunk, you won't get it in an accident.
1: But is there any kind of? That seems pretty clear. But is there any kind of? Is there any kind of attitude or approach to the Bible that? Less than that, that would be considered idolatry.
0: Uh, okay, okay, here. Listen, there's a couple of hands back here. I think that they just they say that to get people away from the Bible, I think. The example I've been studying in the last uh, seven years that would be classic and answer your question about idolatry uh, would be the
1: Lateran uh, uh, apostles and prophets, which could be traced directly to uh, a concept where man can become a god. And that's found out of the Kabbalah. If you submit your life to these new apostles and prophets, you are, by, defa- uh, uh, by in fact, committing idolatry.
0: Because they, they claim to speak God's Word directly. No, more than that, they claim to be God. Okay.
1: One uh, example that I think we could see is in uh, John chapter 5, verse 39, when Jesus says to the ph- Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. But well, it, searching the Scriptures was actually a
0: good thing. It's just that they it was, rebelled against
1: Well, it. That's, that's what I mean. They, <laughs> if, if the Scriptures are just an end in and of themselves and not bringing people to Jesus, then they're coming up short of what the Scriptures are there for. It's, the Scriptures yeah. are a means.
0: Not an end unto themselves. The mean so. it means is to come to Jesus and to sanctify us.
1: Exactly, and that's the. From so you, I
0: suppose you can memorize the Bible and be lost. Yeah, some Satan knows the Bible. He quoted from it.
1: You know, I think that's why us as evangelicals we've been such staunch uh, proponents of authorial intent, because the ultimate author of Scripture is God, and what right. the postmodern generation is doing is they're div- they're divorcing the Scripture from its author. And therefore, it's just a story. And the story, whether it's true or not, is defined by the community, not by the author. And therefore, that leads to what D.A. Carson called bibliolatry, because there's no referent that stands behind the Scriptures. I see. So So you separate
0: the Scripture from the meaning of its author. Okay, let me press forward now here. That's enough for now? All right, I'm pressing forward. Nonetheless, Paul is not their lord, but their slave, whose life's... uh, style of sacrifice and suffering consistently reproduces and embodies the sacrifice and suffering of the Christ whose apostle Paul is. He exercises his ministry by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So um, Barrett also says, To be sure, rejection of the word of God may involve rejection of the bearer of that message, as appears to be the case with the Corinthians. Let ministers and pastors be careful, however, that it is the word that is being rejected and not reality, some fault in them. Such rationalization is not unknown. In any case, Paul's an apostle of Christ. Yes, I need to, remember Peter. He said, if you're buffeted for your faults, what glory is that? And so a a pastor doing wrong in some whatever way says, well, anytime somebody tries to correct him, well, you're, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God, you're rejecting the Bible. That's inappropriate. Uh, we need to all submit to the Scriptures. See, if this is truly from the right, and this is a true application, then I need to submit to it. There's no, nobody gets a free pass from that The authority of Scripture. Now, let's turn to, I want to do the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 15 to 20. Jeremiah 31. And I, I, uh, I did some research on this last night. And I got into my uh, logos, and I found a really good commentary in there from the New American Standard, New American Commentary Series by a guy named Huey. And it was a real gem. So let's turn to Jeremiah 31, and let's see what repentance meant in the Old Testament. And there's some eschatological issues going on here too, because there's a talk about the return from captivity thirty one fifteen Thus saith the Lord. A voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Thus saith the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they shall return from the land of the enemy. And there is Hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for thou art the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote my thigh. I was ashamed and was also humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim, my dear son? Is he my delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I will still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So here is a, 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 a lamentation. So we're talking about a sorrow that leads to repentance. That's what Paul's topic is, sorrow that leads to repentance. Now, Rachel here obviously passed from the scene of history back in Genesis, So Rachel uh, stands for like the mother. Now, Rachel lost, she died in childbirth. And she also was the one who had said, give me children or else I die. So Rachel lamenting is is an idea from Israel's history. But she was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, is that right? And the grandmother of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now Ephraim, who's mentioned here, and this is an example of a figure of speech where a part stands for the whole. So Ephraim here is speaking of Israel, not just the one tribe. And by the way, that tribe was already lost in 722 B.C. because uh, they, they had been part of the northern kingdom and they had already been taken captive. Now Benjamin was still part of the southern kingdom. So probably what's going on here is Rachel was representative of of the loss previously of Ephraim in the northern kingdom. And soon, Benjamin, the southern one, who Jeremiah was prophesying their captivity. So there's weeping and wailing because uh, the children are gone. The grandchildren are gone to the north, and the child, Benjamin, is going to be gone. So Joseph's two children who got his inheritance are gone. Benjamin soon will be. And so I was talking about near and far, and I wanted to cite this great commentary on this and, and see what we can learn about repentance here. Uh, he always points out some of the things I just told you. Rachel died having given birth to Benjamin, whom she named son of my trouble. Rachel's agony in the birth of Benjamin is is mentioned later in Matthew 2.18, where this verse here from Jeremiah is cited when these children were killed in Bethlehem. Okay, and it was applied to that situation. So you have the Hebrew lament and the captivity and the death of children uh, as a background here. And then starting with verse 16 where it says here, Thus saith the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping, your work shall be rewarded. And I'm going to quote this Huey. God is depicted as comforting Rachel with the assurance that her children will return from exile. The exile was meant to preserve Israel and lead it to repentance. Was it not? What was Israel's sin? Idolatry. Idolatry. That caused the captivity. But this was a sorrow designed to bring repentance and so a remnant of the people that came back out of Babylon in a, in a somewhat repented state. They didn't bring their, any idols back with them when they came back. And Nehemiah repented in Nehemiah 9 for the entire nation, owning corporately the sins of his fathers. Okay, that's in Nehemiah 9. But I don't think that exhausted. Let me, I, I agree with what this guy says here. The exile was meant to preserve Israel and lead it to repentance. The the return to the land promised here and elsewhere in the Old Testament has been interpreted by some as fulfilled historically during the restoration under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The lack of spiritual transformation at at that time, however, which is promised here and elsewhere, suggests further fulfillment. Now, either in the present church age, which is what the amillennialists say, or more literally, in a still future age. And then he cites somebody who says that. That's what we believe. We believe God is still going to save Israel. And he's still bringing them out of the captivity. And he's still going to put a new heart in them. Ezekiel 36. Let me go on. Verse, verse 18, quoting this guy. These verses furnish a miniature theology of repentance centering on the verb sub-turn. So the word for the, 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 the term for repent in the Old Testament or the concept, is to turn. And the word turn is in in these verses many times, which occurs seven times. The verb sub, turn, seven times. It's used of Israel's physical return to the land, of their sinful turning from God, and of their spiritual return to God. God quoted Israel's penitential confession, which he desired and determined to hear. The quotation, therefore, served as both instruction and prophecy, Because this people has strayed from the lifestyle God commanded as an unruly calf that refuses to accept the yoke, Hosea 4.16, God had disciplined them. Now, uh, one more paragraph from this uh, Huey. The Lord's grief, pity, and longing for his wayward children is even stronger than that of Rachel or any other human parent. Although Israel earlier had refused to respond to the Lord's discipline, these verses describe a time to come when they would feel the full weight of their guilt, beat their breasts in shame and humiliation, Ezekiel 21:12), and at that time they would again acknowledge the Lord as their God and plead with Him for restoration, admitting their dependence on His power even to repent. Quote, turn me and I will turn. In verse 18. Turn me, that's how he translates it. Turn me and I will turn. Literally, is what it says in verse 18, according to the scholar. Turn me and I will turn. Now, I believe that the roots of prophecy are in history. And a lot of times you don't have to choose an either or, there's a both and. I think there was a partial fulfillment of this in the, in the restoration from Babylon. But it was very temporary. Because already by the time of Malachi, he was lamenting apostasy. Malachi. So there were some righteous people who did repent, notably Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the people there. But I believe, as we saw a couple, was it last week when I preached on this? Yes. Uh, Ezekiel 14. All the nations are going to try to destroy Jerusalem and when God intervenes and saves a remnant of the Jews that have been regathered, that's when I believe this will happen. They would acknowledge the Lord, plead with Him for restoration, admit their dependence on His power, and they'll look upon Him whom they pierced, and they will they'll come to believe that indeed Jesus was and truly is the only Messiah for Israel. Now in the meantime, this idea that we see in Jeremiah chapter 31 is a very, very good depiction of the Old Testament concept of repentance. It's, it includes sorrow, the sorrow that comes to someone when they realize that God is true and that He's always done everything right and that He is who He claims to be and that if they take a, a very honest look at their own selves, they're in a horrible idolatrous condition and that if God would wipe them out it would only be just and that they so severely need the Lord that only his mercy could ever possibly save them. That's what's going on here. That's what this looks like. Admitting their dependence upon his power even to repent. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, says the man. Help me, God, because I'm so, I have such a tendency to sin. I have such a tendency to idolatry. I have such a, this dark blot that I was talking about of sin inside that people used to all acknowledge because they just, they were taught in church. And our whole American society realized that that's the way we were. Now we don't believe that. We think that we're on a journey of self-discovery, as I said in today's paper. That's why I, I read that in the paper. I thought, that's what I'm talking about today. And so in our most popular book the sold, is sounds like, a journey of self discovery. People don't want to believe that if they really discovered their true self, they would discover wickedness and Satan. And so they think they're going to find themselves. Did you see these, and you see it depicted in our literature and in our movies. Um, I saw an article today, and I'm not criticizing these young men, but, there was, but this is sort of what we're trying to do they talked today about two young men who went on a journey and they're canoeing to the Hudson Bay and they're out on Lake Winnipeg. Well, that sort of thing captures our imagination and it's in movies and it's in stories and it's in fiction, but there's this idea that I have to go somewhere and find myself. All right? And it is depicted in various ways, like going to another country and falling in love with a damsel or, you know... Uh, <laughs> Finding my true abilities or, you know, being misdirected and finally deciding, you know what, I think I'll, I'll do this or I'll do that. Okay, so, but that's predicated on the idea that what we, don't, what we need is not repentance, but self-discovery. Okay? But repentance happens in an ironic way. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Let me say this in an ironic way. Repentance is self-discovery. we discover that we were wretched, worthless sinners, and we were worse than we ever dreamed we were. I discovered that. (laughs) God bless you. (laughs) And and when we talked about Thursday night, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal these things unto you, but my Father who is in heaven, this... This revelation of who Jesus is and why we need him and that he needs to be our Lord comes from heaven. He comes from heaven. Okay, you've been patient. I think you have a verse, Troy.
1: Well, I'm not trying to hog the, hog the mic here or anything, but one of the things I was noticing was, uh, you know, I talked about according and, and seems like the only way this can happen is if, it, you know, it's God that's doing it, you know. And even
0: in the Old Testament, the prayer was for God yeah. to change him. Yeah. And, then, you know, they were, the according here is used a few times and, and according to the will of God. So, obviously, it's, it's God that's doing it through
1: the word and through the right. Holy Spirit. Right. And then if
0: you look at these other passages that are related to one in Jeremiah 31, if you go to Ezekiel 36, where it says, God said, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. Now, earlier in Ezekiel, it said, make for yourself a new heart. So some people think, well, we can choose our theology. Now Finney took the one, Charles Finney took the one that says, "Make for yourself a new heart," and he preached a whole sermon on how you could actually do that. Yep, if God says you can do it, then you can do it. So here's here's how you make yourself a new heart, basically through a law. Now, now how would I look at that? I, I look at is Ezekiel being uh, double-minded? So he says, make for yourself a new heart, and one hand, and then he says, God says, I will give you a new heart. Which is it? Well, it's just the law and the gospel, dear brothers and sisters. The law tells us what we should do, and then it's soon revealed that we can't. Cursed is he who does not obey everything written in the law. Galatians 3, quoting the Old Testament. And here's one of the things written in the law. Make yourself a new heart. I can't. My heart is deceitful, wicked. Who could know it? Jeremiah says. Well, what am I to do? You turn to God. Yeah. You say, God, I can't do it. I failed you. The prodigal son, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. I'm loving Luke. Luke is so full of the gospel, isn't it? Yes.
1: I think it's interesting, uh, right before that um, section where it says, turn me and I will return... Uh, right before it, it says, like an untrained bull, restore me, and I will return. Yeah. And, of course, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.25, talks about, you know, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. Repentance comes from God.
0: Yeah, and if, yes, 2 Timothy 2.25, who knows, the servant of the Lord must not be, what, quarrelsome, patient when wrong, apt to teach, Gently correcting those who are in opposition. If for a chance, God grants them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. You and I have no idea who might repent. And there's a lot of sorrow. I was reading in that same commentary. says a mother with rebellious children knows unending sorrow. When, when, you, when you raise a child, and fathers too, but I think it's really intense for mothers. If you raise a child and you love this little child and you gave a, the best part of your young life to take care of this child, and when they get old, if they rebel against you and cause you sorrow and misery, that pierces to the heart. That's Rachel's lament. And Huey says, the sorrow that we feel over a rebellious child is intense and deep as it is. And I'm telling you, when you're a parent and you have a rebellious child, you would give yourself to get them back if if it would do any good. That's the same feeling Paul had for his Jewish brothers. He says, I could worship myself a curse from Christ if it would bring back my Jewish brothers to the Lord. Of course, it couldn't and it wouldn't. But that's the kind of sorrow Paul's talking about. And what Huey said was this. God's sorrow is greater than that of any earthly mother. Rachel's lament is not as strong as God's lament over his own people. And that's the story of the prodigal son that we'll get to I'm in chapter 11, maybe this year. Or next, we'll get to the prodigal son. John MacArthur was so, when he's preaching through Luke, he was so motivated. The, the, the prodigal son so, so got a hold of John MacArthur's heart, he wrote a whole book about it. The Tale of Two Sons. So the father uh, runs after his son. Uh, so dear ones, if you have rebellious children, cousins... Brothers, parents, it may be a difficult thing to do, but remember the passage that that Robert mentioned, Second uh, Timothy two twenty four and twenty five. Do do not give up, be patient, and you will be wrong if you're pleading with somebody about the truth of the gospel. They will not necessarily treat you nicely. All right, somebody. I just heard some stories yesterday where people were talking about the gospel. You know, Thursday night. They were telling me a story, and the people said, well, you must be in a cult. Well, why? Well, a cult, it has to be a cult if it actually believes something. (laughs) I suppose. I don't know. How's just the gospel a cult? But see, you have to be patient. You may hear that sort of thing. Patiently teaching them the truth. The truth is its own defense. Tell the truth and do so with patience because you never know whom God is going to grant repentance to. And further evidence for that was in Acts when, when Peter had to a whole series of miraculous things had to happen to get him to even preach to Gentiles. Remember, he, he saw a trance, and the sheet came down, and an angel came and talked to him, and he said, no, I'm not going to eat this, it's unclean. And, and so, well, God has declared clean. Don't you consider unclean? And angels and all these things happened to get Peter just to go preach to Gentiles. And, and these were god fears, so it was a little easier step in Acts 10. And he preached to them, and the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles the same way that he had fallen upon the people at Pentecost who were saved. Now, what did they conclude after the fact? They said this, and I don't have the chapter and verse, but I know somebody will find it. They said this, we rejoice because God had granted the Gentiles repentance. God granted repentance to Gentiles. So God can even grant repentance to an unclean Gentile. And we can grant repentance to a stiff-necked Jew like Paul. And so this passage, this is really on my heart because it's it's so much central to what we've been talking about here at Twin City Fellowship for quite a few years. So he says here, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God so you might not suffer loss in anything through us. You never know, beloved, who's going to repent, so don't give up on the battle. Don't, don't get discouraged in the discouraging situations. And don't get discouraged because you get rejected by your relatives because they think that you've lost your mind, that you actually think the gospel's true. Or they think you lost your mind because you actually care what's true and what's false as far as the Bible's concerned. Well, why would anybody care? Well, because eternal life is hanging in the balance. Joanna and Dick. Joanna, if you could do Luke 15 and 10... In Acts 20 and verse 21. By the way, the term metanoeo is only used once in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. For some reason, the Septuagint, the Jews who made the Septuagint or translated the Septuagint used other terms for the concept repent besides metanoeo. The only time it's used is in one proverb. But the idea of turn was the Hebrew idea anyhow. So, so a, a synonym, turn, would be very much like repent, to turn. Okay, uh, Luke 15 and verse 10.
1: In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Hmm.
0: There's joy in the angel, among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Hmm. Is it worth it? Amen. Is it worth sharing the gospel? Amen. Acts 20 and verse 21.
1: Could I start with 17? Yes, please do. Okay. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is.
0: What did Paul preach? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is so thematic in Luke Acts, if you can't see it, you're not trying In Luke 24, repentance for forgiveness of sins is the great commission. Now, people, we talk about this in theology class on Thursday night. There's one left, and it's been good. It's been really good. Now, people come and get into quandaries about this because you read these things, and they say, well, this doesn't make sense to me. Let me just raise the question because I've had many people say this. It doesn't make sense to me. Why would this be portrayed this way? If God grants repentance, then why uh, does it say that there's joy over one sinner who repents? So if if you're trying to look at it one way, you could say, well, God's waiting to see if any sinners repent. Because that's what it seems. But on the other way, if God grants repentance, why doesn't he just grant it to everybody? There'd be more joy in heaven then. So, trying to understand the whole counsel of God sometimes causes our brain to work a little bit. Okay? Now, I would say we need to just preach everything for what it says, and if there's something that we can't reconcile in our own mind, put it on a shelf and let it sit there until God gives you understanding. And it's better to do that than to twist the Scriptures. Just, just preach everything that it says. I, when I went to this pastor's uh, breakfast when MacArthur was in town, and he, at the time he was just doing the research. He hadn't got to preaching the prodigal son, and he was so excited about it, he had to tell us about it. And he says, wow, this part of Luke, if you didn't know better, you'd think Luke was an Arminian. <laughs> That's a little bit anachronistic because Arminius wasn't alive before Luke. But, but the, the universal call of the gospel does go out with passion and emotion and intensity. In it, and it says, come to me. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the, the father portraying his long, running. <laughs> once the prodigal son is going to repent, he runs out to, to, to meet him. And my son that was dead is now alive. That's what repentance results in, life. My son was dead, is now alive. He was spiritually dead, and he came spiritually alive. And God just used that. So, that's uh, the theme. There's one more verse here. Let's at least read it. Verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I'll just introduce this idea, and you can be thinking about it for next week. What is the sorrow of the world? (laughs) She says, sorry you got caught. (laughs) I think that's pretty close to the truth. Sorry that some bad consequence happened. Yeah, sorry that I'm not happier than I am. (laughs) But it isn't sorrow that produces salvation, because that is sorrow that comes according to the will of God. It produces repentance. So you can think about that for next week, and um, we'll we'll see you upstairs at 1030. God bless